morning, church. My name is Zach Douglas. I'm the student ministries director here at Country Oaks. Uh, and let's open up in a word of prayer. God, thank you for your word and for the truth that's in it. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that the words of my heart and the, or the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. I pray that you would open up our hearts to your word and open up our minds to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we are continuing our brief series on the covenants, and we will be in Jeremiah chapter 31. We will be in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. So as I said, we are doing a brief series on the covenants. So before we dive into what the new covenant means and what it is, I want to do a brief overview of the other previous covenants in scripture. So a covenant is an agreement between two parties. As we talked about last week, it's the vehicle through which God brings his redemptive plans. It's through the covenants that God's redemptive plans go forward. And the first covenant that we see in scripture between God and man is the one that he makes with Noah when he says that he will never again flood the earth in judgment or at all. I point out last week, we can just look at the brown hills and see that that's true. But that covenant is an everlasting covenant. God will uphold it. We see that in Genesis 8 and 9. The next covenant that we see is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that God promises to Abraham that he will bring a land for Abraham and for his offspring. That's the promised land, the land of Canaan. There will be a great number of descendants from Abraham and that universal blessings will come through him to all the nations. This is a foundational covenant and all the following covenants after this are built upon it. The next covenant we see comes in Exodus when God makes a covenant with Israel through Moses. It's a conditional and temporary covenant that's, that hinges upon Israel's obedience. It's only through their obedience that this covenant um, will last. Moses doesn't get off the mountain when God gives him the covenant before Israel breaks it. So we know that this is a temporary covenant. It was not a means for salvation, but a means for worship and obedience. And Israel was not able to uphold their end of the bargain. But it fulfilled its purpose. In Romans, Paul says that this covenant is holy, righteous, and good. 
So it wasn't broken, but it fulfilled its purpose. In Romans 3.20, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law fulfilled its purpose in showing us the depths of our sin, that there is nothing that we can do in order to work towards righteousness, that our sin will always prevent us from being seen in, as righteous in, our, in God's eyes. We also see God's character through this covenant, and it points us ultimately to Jesus. The next covenant we see is the priestly covenant, which God gives to Phineas, as Nathan talked about a few weeks ago. And he's, he's promising a perpetual priesthood. Then we see the Davidic covenant that God promises David's name will be great and that there will be an everlasting line that comes from David and that God will not leave his sons even though they will sin. And then finally we see in Jeremiah 31 the new covenant that's given following the breaking of the old. It's given in the midst of Israel facing exile in the face, in the midst of their doom, in the midst of God reversing the exodus God promises them that they are not, that this is not the end. God gives them a reason for hope, even though they're facing death and destruction. So my goal this morning is to talk about what the new covenant is, talk about Jesus in the new covenant, and then we'll close with the, what the new covenant implications are for us today. So what is the new covenant? In verses 31 and 32, of Jeremiah 31, God says that the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God is saying that this new covenant is not like the old one. That it stands in contrast to the one that was given to Moses. He points out that that's specifically the one he's talking about. That, it, that once he pulled them out of Egypt, God gave them this covenant, Israel broke it, and now he has to make a new one. And then in 33 and 34, God gives us the promises of this covenant. Of this covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the foundational passage for this covenant. God is laying out all of his promises. He's telling us what he is going to do, how this covenant is better than the old one, and what to expect in it. There are four key promises in this covenant. The first one is that God will put his law within us, and he will write it on their hearts. This stands in stark contrast to the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the law had to be taught to people. There was external pressure on them to follow the covenant, and they constantly broke it. Israel's history and their leaders are riddled with law-breaking. Even their, the heroes of Israel broke the covenant. We know Moses broke the covenant. He wasn't even allowed to enter into Egypt or into, into the promised land. David breaks the covenant. And then there are king after king after king breaks the covenant. In talking about this with my wife, she pointed out how even the priests would have bro broken the covenant. In 
the community of Israel would have seen their priests breaking covenants and knowing that they sinned, that those are the people that go before God on their behalf. The law was external. It was engraved in stone, and it's similar to our law today in that. Obviously, California laws are not given by God. <laughs> uh, but, but it's nearly impossible for us to perfectly follow the laws of our land. When we're driving down the road, every single one of us that has a license, and your kids, I'm sure you've heard, um, know that the signs on the side of the road with a speed limit means that's what you're, that's the speed you're supposed to go as you go past 10 miles over. We also know or need to be reminded that we're supposed to use our blinker according to the law when we make a turn. Uh, and th- those are major ones, though. And then there's also little laws, like some ridiculous. In Blythe, California, you <laughs> it's illegal to wear cowboy boots unless you own two cows. So my point isn't just to point out funny laws, but it's to point out that it's impossible for us to adhere to an innumerable amount of laws. In Israel, they had 613 laws commanded. 613. We can barely keep track of the 10 that were given. So it's reasonable to think that it was, it's impossible for them to, to adhere to the law. They might forget that you can't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Yes, that is a law under the Old Covenant. In fact, it's given three times. Of all the laws, even if they knew all the laws, though, the sinfulness of man makes it impossible to perfectly adhere to the law. History shows, Israel's history shows, it's impossible for man to obey the law to the point of being seen as righteous. In Galatians 3.10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's coming from a man who was a Pharisee. He knew the law, and he says himself, Paul says himself, that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He's pointing out that it was necessary for us to have a new heart in order to to be a part of the new covenant. The new heart was vital to the new covenant. Without the new heart, everything else falls away. And that's what's so great about this blessing is that the law isn't something that we have to, that we hear in order to obey, that it's written on our hearts. Yes, in our sinfulness, we have to be reminded of our sinfulness and that we're not adhering to what Jesus has called us to do. But it's written, his law is written on our hearts. This new covenant is centered on a new heart, and without it, everything else falls away. Even for us today, even though the law has been written on our hearts, we still break God's commands. We still sin. For those of us seeking uh, seeking sanctification, those of us seeking righteousness, those of us desiring to obey God, it's discouraging to be in our sin. There are times when we overcome a, a sin that has been in our life for a long time, and we feel that victory from that sin, and we should feel that victory, thankfulness to God that he brought us through it. But then we turn around and we sin again. Even though we have moments of victory over sin, 
our sin is still staring us in the face. There's a discouragement and a frustration of being stuck in the already but not yet. We're already the law has been written on our hearts. Already we're under this new covenant, but we still are sinning. In Romans 8.29, Paul writes this. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. God has predestined that we will be conformed to the image of his Son, conformed to righteousness and holiness. This verse should be an encouragement to us because it means that God is going to complete the work that he is doing within us. That through our obedience, we are, we are being sanctified by God. And it should also be an encouragement in that this life is not all that there is. That there is a future where we won't sin. That there will be a, a future where we obey God perfectly. With the right motivations, with the right heart. This is, not an, if, this is not a covenant where it says, if you obey, you will be part of it. But the desire to obey and obedience in itself is a blessing that comes from this covenant. The second blessing is that God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a recurring promise from God. We see it first in Genesis 17 when, he says, I, to, when God says to Abraham, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Those those of us who are part of the new covenant are God's people. We have a claim to God, and God has a claim to us. It's a promise of, of belonging to God in a mutual love relationship. And this is a promise, like I said, we see it throughout the Old Testament in Exodus 6-7. God says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. It is the same integral blessing as from the Old Covenant, the presence of God himself. One theologian puts it this way. He says, whenever God makes a covenant with his people, what he is really giving them is himself. Thus, the primary blessing of the New Covenant is, is friendship and fellowship with the triune God. What I want to point out is that God says that he will do this. It doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on anything that we can do, but it depends on God, the one who is faithful. The fulfillment of this is that the new covenant people are the people of God. We enter into a community that brings us into the people of God, but it brings, that, it brings a necessary question of, are these promises for Gentiles? It says it's for Israel. It says it's for the Jews. God says, I'm making this covenant with Israel and with Judah. So how does this covenant extend to Gentile believers? In Genesis 17.5, Abraham is said to, that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. So it's not just Israel that Abraham will be the father of. In Galatians 3, 23 to 29, Paul, in, ref- <clears throat> in refuting um, the Judaizers, the one who are, are saying that the Galatian believers have to adhere to the law, says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heir, heirs according to the promise. We are heirs according to the promise because of faith. It's in faith we are made sons and daughters of Abraham. It's because of our faith, not because of our heritage. In Ephesians 1, God specifically calls it adoption. We are joining into God's family. We have plenty of, of broken examples of adoption but in, in our world, but in perfect adoption, adopted sons and daughters are in the family with no distinction. They're in the family with no distinction. We look around this room. In Galatians, yes, it says that there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. But that doesn't mean that the distinctions are being wiped away. We look around the room and we can see all of the distinctions between us. What it means is is that these are not obstacles to being in the family of God. They're not obstacles to being in fellowship with one another. That brings us to the third And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Through the Old Covenant, we know that God reveals himself. He reveals who he is. I mean, that's the book of Exodus. That's the Bible in its entirety, is God revealing himself. But God is saying that we will know him. We will know him intellectually, we'll through scripture and the illumination by the spirit, we will know God's character, his will, his commands. But we also will know him relationally. That sin no longer separates from us from God. That we don't, we don't need a, a human mediator. We don't need a, sin, a mediator who is also a sinner like the priests in Israel. We don't need someone to reveal knowledge of God in its greatest fulfillment but each one of us can study and learn because God enables us to. On Thursday night this past week at our student ministries Bible study, we did a Q&A where the students send in questions, and then I bring in a panel of people from our congregation, mature believers from our congregation, to answer those questions. And these are, these are, these are really hard questions. Nathan was on the panel this past Thursday, and the first thing he said to me was, why are these so hard? But what I loved about it, and I said this to the students, is that from the panel, we had three men up there, and it was Nathan, Casey Hahai, and and Jim Davis, who's an elder, and I pointed out to the students that out of the three of our panelists, only one of them has a a seminary, has seminary training. The other two who answered the questions incredibly didn't have any seminary. But they knew God through his word, through scripture. And the the other times that we've done panels, none of the four men up there had seminary training. 
we can each study and learn about God because God enables us to. This firsthand knowledge of God will be completely fulfilled in the coming kingdom. Right now, we still need teachers. We still need to be guided within a community. Obviously, in Scripture, it, it commands us to. In Colossians 3, it's, Paul tells us that we are to teach and admonish one another. So we're still corrupted by the sinfulness of this world, but we, can, we will know God intimately in the coming kingdom. The fourth promise is the climax. This is the big one. God says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God is finally promising, clearly promising forgiveness of sin in this covenant. Forgiveness of sin and all iniquity. Those who are part of it are declared righteous by God, reconciled in relationship with him, and sin is no longer separating us from God. And the most amazing part about this is that God says he will do it. That I will forgive iniquity. Not you will earn forgiveness. Not your obedience will declare you righteousness. But it's I will forgive iniquity. God will bring it to pass. It has the same assurance as when God told Moses in Exodus 6 that he will bring Israel out of Egypt. The old, co- <clears throat> the old covenant showed the need for salvation admirably. It did it perfectly. But the new covenant brings that salvation to us. And its ful- fulfillment is through Jesus on the cross. Through the death of Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. He adhered to the law perfectly. And he went to the cross on our behalf that when we put our faith in his works and declare him our Lord and Savior and repent from our sins... We receive forgiveness. It is a gift from God that we are able to do that. And I don't want us to miss that because this is the shortest, the fewest words as far as a promise goes in Jeremiah 31. Everything else is founded upon it. The new heart is central to it, yes. But the forgiveness of sins is the most important part. We obey. Obedience comes from a new heart and gratitude for that forgiveness. The overarching emotion of this covenant is love, not fear. And despite the differences between the old and the new covenant, the key promise, the the overarching promise is the same. In both, God proclaims, I will be their God and they will be my people. In both, the presence of God is the ultimate blessing. It is what God is promising and These covenant promises are how God is going to bring that into play. But we can only receive these blessings if we are part of the new covenant people. If we repent from our sins, if we turn from our sins, my favorite image of true repentance is Paul. That he's on the road to Damascus to persecute the early church. He sees Jesus face to face, and he repents from his sins. He turns from his sins. Instead of persecuting the church, He proclaimed the gospel, and God used him to build the church. He submitted to Christ as his Lord and Savior and was baptized. Paul is the ultimate, is my my favorite example of what repentance looks like. But this covenant is only possible because of Jesus Christ. 
Only through Jesus can we receive the blessings, uh, the blessings promised. In Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus claims that all the promises of the of the new covenant will find their fulfillment in Him. He says that His blood is the is the cup of the new covenant. This covenant was ratified. It was it was enacted. It began when Jesus died on the cross. So how does Jesus fulfill each promise? And we'll go in reverse order. First, he gives us the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus is, is, it's the same moment Jesus is enacting the Lord's Supper. And he says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 14 tells us that in Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' sacrifice is brings us that forgiveness. We also, through Christ, receive knowledge of God. In John 14, 6-7, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see God. Through Jesus the truth of who God is is revealed to us. It's only through Christ can we truly know God, and if we know Jesus, we also know the Father. The next blessing is God's is that we are God's people and that God is our God. Ephesians uh, 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the, fa- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We are predestined for perfect adoption. We are seen as sons of Abraham because of our faith, thus we are sons of God because of Jesus Christ. It's only possible because of him. In the old covenant, you entered into that community through circumcision and heritage. In the new covenant, we enter in through through faith in Christ, repentance of sin, and baptism. Not only is God our God, but he is also our Father. We are sons and daughters of the King. In Matthew 6, we get a great picture of it. Jesus is talking about not being anxious about the clothes we have or or money. He's saying that, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. God cares for them. He provides for them. How much more valuable are we? We are made in God's image. We are sons and daughters of God. So we can trust and have full assurance that our Father will take care of us. He will give us exactly what we need. And then the final promise, the first one in Jeremiah's order, is that the law will be written on our hearts. He's pointing out that obedience doesn't come from external sources, that we don't need to be taught the law, but that in the new covenant, the law will be written on our hearts. So how does God do this? In Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, he says, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God writes the law on our hearts. He reveals himself to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes upon every believer. He also says that he will cause us to walk in his statutes and he will cause us to be careful to obey his rules. That it's God who does the work within us for obedience. And it is through that obedience that we are conformed to the image of his son. This is the key aspect of the new covenant is that the Holy Spirit indwells within us, that our hearts are changed by the spirit in order that we might obey God and love him. Jesus promised this also. He says in John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That Jesus will do the work that sends the Holy Spirit to every believer. And through this gift, we're given a new heart. We're given a new spirit, and that leads to the blessing of God's presence. It's through that we are forgiven of our sins because of our faith in Christ. That we enjoy eternal life with him in God's presence. This happens when we profess faith in Christ. And we see in Acts 2, 1-4, this occurred first on the day of Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The new covenant was ratified with Jesus' death on the cross. But this moment, the day of Pentecost, Jesus had told the disciples to wait for He said, wait until I send my Spirit to you. The day of Pentecost marks the birth of the new covenant people. The indwelling of the Spirit marks the beginning of the church. It is the birthday of the church. And according to the church calendar, today is the day of Pentecost. Today is the, same, is the day that 2,000 years ago or so, I have a seminary degree, not a math degree. Today is the day that 2,000 years ago that the Holy Spirit indwelt within the church. This is a big deal. Before the new covenant, the Holy Spirit temporarily indwelt in people. It was infrequent, and it only happened to select Israelite leaders. And it happened for the purpose of empowering them for service to God. But under the new covenant, all believers are indwelt with the Spirit. In Romans 8, 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. This isn't something that we have to work to achieve. But upon faith, the Spirit dwells within us. Jesus has sent His Helper. For believers, that's in the past tense. We've received His Spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit that gives us a new heart and writes the law on it. No longer are we under the law but it's written on our hearts. So happy birthday, church. But what does it mean to be a new covenant believer? The scriptures give us 
lay out for us what we are called to do as people under the new covenant. And this isn't this isn't a covenant where we just profess faith and we're good. But there are commands that we obey. That's why the law is written on our hearts. For indi- individual believers, it means the indwelling of the Spirit. It means obedience for the purpose of joy. That we can be assured of our faith because the work has been done in Christ. And we're called to obey in faith. We're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to walk in the Spirit, mortifying the flesh, killing sin. We turn away from our sin for the sake of the joy that we can only find in the presence of God, which is promised to us in the new covenant. We're also called to love our neighbors as ourselves and to make disciples of all nations. The Holy Spirit enables us to do this through his indwelling within us. He is our illuminator, our guide, our strengthener, the one who convicts us of sin, the one who seals us for salvation, the one who assures us of our faith. He softens our hearts. And that's only a brief look at the many ministries of the Spirit. So as an individual, we obey God, we seek to obey him, and we walk in the Spirit. But Christianity is not just an individual faith. It's a communal faith as well. So what does it mean to be the church of the new covenant? The first thing is that all surface-level obstacles go away. I'm going to read Galatians 3.28 again. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. As I said earlier, he's not wiping away distinctions. They're still very much there. But he says also in Ephesians 2 that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. That these obstacles to true, perfect community in Christ are taken away. They're removed so that we can love one another. It means that we confess our sins to one another. That we are a community seeking the glory of God, founded upon the word of God, guided by the spirit and working to spread the gospel throughout the world. It's a call to live as the new covenant people. To trust that Christ has done the work for us. He has done the work for salvation and we put our faith in him. We are no longer held to the old covenant law. It is obsolete. It is vanishing away. And we are under a new covenant, a better one, as the author of Hebrews says. In Galatians, the whole book of Galatians is Paul saying that it is foolishness to go back to the law, to try to earn your salvation through works. He specifically calls the Galatians foolish Galatians. He's telling them to stop trying to earn their salvation. He elaborates on this in Galatians 5, 3 to 6. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you try to adhere to the law in order to earn salvation, you are obligated to keep all of it, he's saying. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith in Christ Jesus counts for anything. No adherence to the law counts. That doesn't mean we obey. We don't obey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls that cheap, uh, cheap grace when we try to say that, okay, I'm good, 
I'm saved, and so I can live however I want, and then ask for forgiveness. That's not true faith. We're called to obey God with love. So we live as a new covenant people. We no longer live in the flesh. We no longer live according to the law. We no longer need a guardian. But we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. I talked about Paul earlier that true repentance is turning away from sin. But just as we're turning away, we also have to turn towards something else. So what do we do? Galatians 5 tells us that we walk by the Spirit and we don't carry out the works of the flesh. And then Paul lists the work of the flesh but tells us the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Notice that it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the works of the Spirit. The work has already been done, and we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And because of that, we live by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. In Colossians 3, Paul calls believers to seek the things above. Tells us to put off the things of this world, the things of the flesh, and to put on the things of God. In Colossians 3, 12 to 17, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As God's people, this is what we put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, through the Father, through him. This is how we live as a new covenant people. These are the things that we put on. As a new covenant people, it means that we put off the sinful flesh. It means that we know that the law has been written on our hearts by the Spirit, that we are guided by the Spirit. We know that we've been adopted into the family of God. We, are, we know that we are known by God and that we can know him. And we know that our sins have been forgiven and we are reconciled to God. This is only possible through the work and person of Jesus Christ. That is through our faith in him we are made as new covenant believers. That the law is written on our hearts and we can obey God expecting joy that can only come from his presence. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and and for the life that you have given us through your son. I pray that we would take hold of this truth, that when we put away the works of this world, the works of the flesh, that we would put on the works of the spirit, that we would put on the fruit of the spirit and walk in step with him. I pray that as we go out from here, that we would 
we would understand what it means to be a new covenant people, and that we would seek your presence and seek joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.